Imagine you gave a dollar a day to a worthy cause, but you did it along with thousands of Jewish people around the globe, and you all donated to one cause every single day. Thousands of your $1 bills pulled together towards one cause daily. What's the impact of your dollar then? You don't have to imagine it. You can and should do it by joining Daily Giving today. Head over to dailygiving.org and become a daily giver today. That's dailygiving.org. Jewish Money Matters, episode 343, An Honest Look at Honesty, part two with Rabbi Levi Landa. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. But if we really did have a perspective that Hashem is the one who's providing everything for us, and the decision that I have is, can I make the right vessel to receive that blessing that was destined for me and my my family? That's actually the agency that I've been given. Right. Am I going to attempt it through some type of questionable gray area, mm-hmm. illegal means? No, It's it clearly has to be through something that, you know, would be in keeping with the Torah's values and instructions and expectations of us. So that's where I think we really have to speak to this tension that could be there where, I know Rabbi Lister spoke about instant gratification. Yes. The, so the benefits of doing something questionable are there immediately. They're they're present. The, the It's the expedient thing. It's mm-hmm. the thing that perhaps it calms everything down for the time being. The potential risks just, they just don't, they don't factor in because mm-hmm. they're so different. Distant, right. and they seem and they seem so small, and that's why I think we have to have a conversation really of okay, what, but what do those risks really look like? Right. Because if somebody was really looking at this through some type of cost benefit analysis, there's no way they would get anywhere near. Mm-hmm. You don't want the minutest potential of something like that blowing up the family that you've built and the way that you want to take care of your loved ones and you know everything that's near and dear and precious to us that we've devoted our whole lives to. Why would I even allow the smallest potential? for all of that to erupt mm-hmm. in my face, God forbid. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Today, we're talking about honesty, financial honesty. This is part two of the series, An Honest Look at Honesty with Director of Project 432, Rabbi Levi Landa. Project 432 is a division of the Aleph Institute, bringing awareness and education to the Jewish community so that we can live life according to the highest Torah and legal standards. But as Rabbi Levi Landa presents to us today, the pressures and temptations are great and are real. And just as real is the fact that we have a side of us that can rise above it, especially if we've learned what is the line that I'm never to cross. So when and how does the line get blurry for people? Today, Rabbi Landa takes the wisdom gained after the fact, the lessons learned from those who faced imprisonment for financial crimes, and unpacks them for us so that we can gain greater awareness and sensitivity about the risks we all face. All Yes, Rabbi Landa clarifies for us that this is not a fringe issue, and this is not something that happens to other people. This is something that happens to decent, honest people like you and me. You will learn about the things that make us vulnerable, the role of parents, the role of financial pressures and poor communication between spouses, and much more. Here's Rabbi Levi Landa. (laughs) 
Rabbi Landa, welcome to Jewish Money Matters. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Likewise. I am very, very excited to have this conversation. This is part two of a series that we've put together um, in collaboration with your organization, Project 432, an honest look at honesty. Project 432 is a project of the Aleph Institute. Um, we're talking about you know, prevention. This is, we're talking about in, in the sense of helping Jewish individuals hold the highest standards of Torah and of le- and legal standards when it comes to financial and business decisions and preventing a wrong and perhaps innocent move that might lead them straight into prison. Um, innocent, not, not wanting that to be the consequence, evidently. So Rabbi Landa, welcome. And thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I wanted to get started with Project 432. Um, why Project 432? And why start coming out with this publicly? This is obviously something that the Aleph Institute has been around since 1981. Why Project 432 specifically? And maybe why now? Why are we doing this? So I mean, there really could never be you know, a more, a more better time. Um, I feel like whenever we would have launched this, it's perhaps a little bit too late because it's so, it's so urgently needed. Um, Aleph very much in its, um, you know, in its work is very much responsive. It's, you know, responding to a crisis that's already there. Um, an individual caught up in the criminal justice system, their family, Really, you know, people are cracked wide open when they face this type of thing in a way that's really hard to imagine unless you've kind of seen it mm. um, up front and close. And, you know, I wish that nobody ever have to see that, but it but it does happen. Um, and Aleph is there kind of taking the journey with people at a very, very early stage. We begin, you know, often pre-sentencing. We have a very robust alternative sentencing department. Um, and then there, our advocacy team is there working within the BOP system. There's a team of rabbis that have connections at every state and federal facility to be able to advocate, not just for religious needs, by the way, but humanitarian needs. If somebody needs a furlough to attend, you know, a parent's funeral or, or to try to leave for a few hours to attend a bar mitzvah or a, or a wedding, medical procedures, um, clemency, commutations, pardons. There's so much um, that is needed to advocate on behalf of people caught up within this. And then there's our family support division, which is working, you know, with the family that le- that's left behind hmm. to pick up the pieces who are really kind of sent to their own prison. And, and on and on, all the way through, you know, taking that journey with people all the way through when they are, you know, thank God, on the other side of incarceration, but still very much trying to rebuild their lives and re re-enter society and um and be productive and begin be, begin to heal. Um all of this is reacting. Mm-hmm. One the one piece that I think it was always present is so is so needed. And there there were some, you know, um efforts that happened in the past, but it was just really needed to do it on a on a comprehensive level is okay, can we take a step back and can we evaluate, you know what how how did we get here um what are the lessons that we can learn from everything that we've observed of people who do god forbid find themselves caught up um in a situation what can we learn to really help people avert the whole you know heartbreaking um episode to just avoid it 
entirely. How can we take the wisdom gained after the fact and leverage that towards helping people at a much at a much earlier stage with education and awareness? And that mm-hmm. is really, um, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, we really made a concerted effort to focus in an entirely different way on being proactive and intentional. How can we reach people um, and in a measurable way, help them avoid behaviors that might lead them to becoming caught up in something that just has far reaching consequences. And that was really the genesis of, of project 432. And, you know, over that time period, it's, it's grown. And at the same time, we continue to see the need for it. Mm-hmm. But I think also, thank God, we're able to see that it is possible to make a difference. And we're beginning to get feedback, you know, hey, that really changed my perspective. And by the way, platforms like yours are really, really important. And that's why I'm so grateful that you would team up with us um, to offer this education and awareness, because it lets somebody get a perspective that perhaps um, they wouldn't be privy to from the comfort of wherever they're listening, right. where they're already dialed in, um, and to shine a spotlight on what is, you know, an area of life that's often shrouded in stigma and sometimes misinformation. And it's an uncomfortable topic. And mm-hmm. I know that because I talk about it for a living. Yeah. Um, and And that means that we have to find a more comfortable way of talking about it, because if we don't talk about it, it's really impossible to make, to make progress. Yes. Um, yes. And that's what we're trying to do is find different opportunities at different, you know, ages and stages of life. Um, and we can talk about that. We're really actually beginning at a very young age because a lot of these perspectives and the culture around money and th- this type of decision-making, it really does get baked in often very, very early. Yeah. We have to address it at a young, at a young stage. I agree. And it's something that when I had Rabbi Lipsker talking um, about, about project 432, he, we also delved a little bit into that. So I'm curious with that, what are the, what are some of the programs when we talk about project 432, um, you said you're starting at an earlier age. So what are, what are, so people get a sense of what is the offer here? So we're actually right now we're in the middle um, of piloting a middle school curriculum. Nice. So we're actually lining up partner schools that will be working with us, um, you know, just over the beginning of the school year. This is for seventh, eighth grade. This is nothing that has to do with the criminal justice system, but everything to do with the foundations of honesty and integrity. Right. So it's really kind of that elemental layer. How can we create a really solid healthy perspective around understanding, you know, what does it mean to take something that's not mine? What does it mean to not be completely transparent and honest in a way that shows up for an eighth grader? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I remember a conversation that I had with somebody who had spent probably six or seven years behind behind bars. Um, and I was very privileged to work on a, uh, a petition for clemency from President Trump, that he was ultimately granted. It was, you know, wow. a, a very compelling, heartbreaking case. And he had served a lot of time and was genuinely remorseful. Um, and I asked him, I said, when really would be the time to go back? If we had the miracle of a time machine, you know, 
I know your story a little bit. Where would you say we should go back and we could have? And he, I, I remember because this left a really big impression on me. He said, Rabbi, you honestly, you couldn't go back early enough. I think he wow. said, when you, when you learn to take the cookie from the cookie jar and pretend that it was your sibling, that's, that's, that he saw that as part of what eventually wow. led him to um, the situation, the situation that he, that he faced. So we're working as young as, middle school we've developed a workshop for high school yeshiva yeshiva students um Mm -hmm. and this is already more first of all the religious obligations here um what is halacha what does the torah teach us how is a jewish person meant to view um this topic um but also a little bit more you know directly and overtly talking about the criminal justice system and bringing forth our experience in terms of what we see are the root causes that bring people to make, you know, decisions that later have enormous um, consequences right. and, and practical tips. Right. And, you know, what, in a way that's relevant for the life of a teenager, because there's, there's a lot of things that begin to play out already um, at that age, you know, that might not, they might not be paying taxes yet, but there's all types of things that definitely do, do come into play. Um, and then we've, you know, partnered on with different organizations on so many levels, whether it's nonprofit compliance, um, and we're working on a guide to best practices and that, in that arena, um, training rabbis, by the way, mm-hmm. um, community, community leaders, um, and then awareness to the general public, whether it's, you know, on all types of media, whether it's in print, um, or or online. Um, these are all like really important. What we'd like to do is start a conversation and right. find find ways of keeping it at the forefront of public consciousness in a way that is helpful and feels feels comfortable to to talk about it. Um, so that it's not something that's kind of relegated to the relegated to the corner. I think there needs to be some constancy and consistency. Yeah. 100%. So that it, it gets more focus. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I'm curious as to the the middle school, high school, is this also going to include girls? Is there an outlook to try to include the girls institutions as well? So um, that is absolutely something that we have on our horizon. It's it's a mm-hmm. little bit early for me to lay out more details about that. We're actually going to be um, convening, convening something of a think tank. Amazing. Girl, um, you know, educators in the girls high school, high school space. Um, I will tell you, I think that this is a really critical, important piece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember giving a workshop on this actually at a girls' high school, 11th and 12th graders. Mm-hmm. And I asked them if they thought there was a particular gender that is, you know, nine times out of 10, um, going to be the one to commit some type of a financial crime. And they correctly said um, the male, the male gender. Wow. Um, and um, we talked, though, about how 100% of their wives are, are women. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about the person who might do the behavior, but it's the impact that that has on their on their wife, on their daughter, who is maybe trying to get married and is saddled with what that looks like when, you know, with all the shame and stigma around having a parent who's behind bars. Right. Um, a wife that has to go out in the community and 
keep carpool going and perhaps support the family for the first time. And while face, you know, facing friends and neighbors who might be well-intentioned, but often ask very invasive questions. And I remember speaking to a woman who had a very public role in her community. Um, and she shared with me what it was a little bit of what it was like, and it's enormous what she, what she went through in a way, you know, she, the first time that she visited her husband, she, she couldn't understand why he was so relaxed because he had been sitting in a very, very different environment. Yes. Behind bars, but she had just been dealing with so many overwhelming stuff, keeping everything, you know, afloat. And she kind of just came at their, you know, the very first time that she was able to actually see him face to face. And there was just this total juxtaposition. Right. um, Disconnect because they were, the experiences were, were so different. So we cannot speak about doing better in these areas without, you know, reaching out to our women, our girls, talking about what this looks like in a family and also recognizing the role that everybody has to play in terms of, um, we can't ignore how pressures to keep up and um, budgeting or lack mm-hmm. of that. And this is something that could exist in a really pronounced way in a tight knit community mm. where, you know, you're living in close proximity to people that where there may be a certain standard for um, how people are dressed or there's a standard for how we celebrate and you're going to shul and your children are going to school and you're living on the block and it creates, you know, a lot of pressure to keep up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could put, sometimes it just has to be even a perceived pressure. It's not mm-hmm. even a real pressure on the part of the breadwinner. But if, you know, a father feels I have to provide, you know, in this way, um, that's something that really needs to be, it needs to be spoken about because it could be right. really, really in intense. And one of the things that we know is that that can often be a contributing factor to cutting corners or getting stuck in something. Interesting. It maybe starts off small and, and spirals later. And if there was a real conversation between the husband and the wife about what is within our means, what is beyond our means, the risk that this might be putting our family in, I think people would come together and, and couples would come together in a way that would be just so much more healthy and united and say, we don't want this possibility hanging over right. our, our right. family. Yeah. And it's even like, even before the, the fact that there's a possibility when there's silence. And like you said, it's a, this perceived pressure of I don't keep up if I don't, you know, kind of dress my children a certain way or give my wife a certain things. The minute a, business opportunity presents itself that seems to be really lucrative and easy. And, you know, you might be very tempted to jump at it without really giving it thought because again, the conversation is not happening at home as to how do we, how do we balance what's really coming in with what's going out, right? Like in terms of the flow of, of money into our household. Um, so it, it is very interesting how that could play out and really have an impact on the financial decisions of one of the spouses, which again, like you well mentioned before, is has an impact not just on the one person, but really the entire family um, once this goes so south. So true. As you're saying that, I'm thinking of stories that we've seen that we've seen play out that really 
you know, that was such a big part of it. Um, and I remember, you know, someone who spent a very, very long time was quoted in an article mm-hmm. where he said, you know, the greatness of his wife, that after everything that they had been through as a family, she never once said, I told you so. Wow. And what that means is, though, is that she she had an inkling or, or perhaps even said, and I think that those voices need to be, they need to be amplified. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, in a general way, um, women are more risk averse. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, if we, if we could generalize, sometimes handle the the pressures and the decision-making in a way that is more, you know, where there's more due diligence. Let's, yes. Let's say in a, in a general, in a general way. And I think that that really needs to be brought, it needs to be brought to beer. It's part of, it's part of the conversation. So that's all my long way of saying that I think programming for women and girls is really important. And I hope that, you know, we're, we're definitely speaking to women and girls on the awareness side in terms of um, articles and, and stuff like that. But I think we need, we need programs in high school, seminary. Um, and, and we need to look at this through a, a woman's lens. And I think that that really has to be guided with perspective from women, women themselves. Yeah. 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 Amazing. I remember when I talked to Rabbi Lipsker, we talked about the fact that, you know, there's also, as you were alluding to, there's a certain intuition, right? They, we, we understand from a Jewish perspective that women were endowed with a higher level of intuition of, you know, understanding. So sometimes your spouse, your, you know, the woman has an intuition and kind of like gets brushed off. You don't understand about taxes or you don't understand about this or that. And, and we had this conversation about how, you know, we have to see it's, it's more of a marriage conversation, right? It's a, if it's a partnership, it's a real partnership, then your spouse's intuition is something to not just brush off, but really take into account, really go back to the conversation, which is again, we just kind of all saying the same thing. It boils down to communication. Now I want to, I want to, you mentioned that the lessons over this period of time, working, you know, through Aleph's work, you, you've all had the, you've all been exposed to the lessons. What are the things that we take from these people's experience? They themselves have told you the lessons. This was a great story that you told me how this man was able to tell you, look, it starts very, very early on, right? What are perhaps some of those lessons on, you know, how do we get got here? What are some of the lessons perhaps about the root causes um, that you've been able to sort of extrapolate from all the different stories that you've been exposed to? So um, we actually, we went about this in a pretty, you know, thorough way. We interviewed 30, 30 clients. Wow. Um, and no, none of these stories were the same in terms of, you know, the type of behavior that landed them in trouble and the specifics. These are all kind of fascinating, rich human, human stories with, with a lot of, you know, personality and, and often drama to them hmm. because they're, you know, these are things that had a lot of really changed the trajectory of an individual and, and a family. Um, and overwhelmingly, I want to say maybe with the exception of, one one case they 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 fell into one of three buckets okay in terms of in terms of the root causes and we th- those were the questions that we asked people we said you know we're we're used to having a conversation about how you need help and and what the 
you know, what are the pressing needs? These were people who, for the most part, had kind of been um, through a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Now, can we, can we kind of unpack this? What, how did we get here? How did we get here? Right. What, what really could have been different that would change the outcome? And most importantly, what would you tell somebody else who was in your, in your set of, but again, to clarify for listeners, these are otherwise upright contributing members of society. Those are not people who are intended. To, they're not. They don't have criminal records. They're not intending to be criminals. A hundred percent. That's so. So actually, that that that's a really really important point. If there is one point that I would say, bottom line, that I would want to share with your listeners is that know that this happens to people like you and me. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy for there to be, um, to have a perspective because it's shrouded in so much mystique and right. intrigue. And it's, you know, a little bit of a dark part of human, of human nature that, you know, this happens to someone else. Mm-hmm. Doesn't happen to kind of regular people like you and me. I, I realized this, by the way, I would introduce people, myself and people would ask me what I did. And so I would say I'm working for Olive and I um, I've been tasked with with leading the preventive education and awareness team. And eight times out of 10, the follow up question to that would be, OK, but how are you going to find the people that are going to commit? Like, how do you know that you're <laughs> leveraging your and there was like a little bit of a disconnect. And what I realized was, is that beneath that, what they're basically saying is, you know, oh, there's a certain type of person. Right at risk for financial crime mm-hmm. and you would need to find that person. And how do you know at a, at age 13 or how do you know at age 19, or even at age 25 or 35, how do you know who that person is? And this is not the reality that we see. If you would be able to see what we see, you would see that this happens to wonderful people, people who, and by the way, I probably had a similar perspective before I began working at Mm. Olive and, you know, would have seen things in a similar way. And that's why the reality of seeing the way that this actually looks is so important. And that's Mm -hmm. what we're, that's what we're trying to share because I think it changes. You can never kind of say that, you know, oh, I'm immune. There's that tendency to think, you know, okay, there are good apples and rotten apples. Right. And if you landed in prison and, you know, your family's experiencing all of this. It's tragic, but you must have been a rotten apple who's so, who's so different from me. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the humble reality that we, that we see play out in a very real gripping way is that, a, I'm not going to say everything or, or a blanket statement, but so much of what we see could happen to anybody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It's a mix of, there isn't, by the way, the research on this is also really conclusive. There isn't, you know, we spoke about gender, but besides for that, there really isn't a certain psychological profile for who is at risk for financial crime. Wow. It is is situational. It is somebody who has certain pressures, is in a position and has the ability to do X, Y, and Z, and somehow is able to rationalize it and live and live with themselves. And we can talk about, you know, we will get into get into all of that. But it's 
kind of the confluence of all of those things coming together within, you know, the mess of life mm-hmm. leads to somebody sometimes making, you know, what was really a quick decision or even sometimes a non-decision or something that just happened and only a long time down the road, the results of that come to bear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Rabbi Lipster has said that Aleph could be called the therefore, but for the grace of God, go I. Mm. And I think that's, that's the number one point that I would kind of lay out is that this happens to regular, not just normal, but beautiful families. I've cried with them. I've listened, you know, to wives. I've sat with husbands and wives and this happens to, you know, good people. Um, so that's that's just kind of, I think, a really important general point. Um, but to get to your question, which is a really good one, what are the root causes mm-hmm. that, that we see? There's three, there's three general um, underlying root causes. Number okay. one is number one is ignorance. Mm-hmm. You don't know what you don't know. And right. that's a huge that's a huge blind spot. Um it could be not understanding the risks associated with dealing in large amounts of cash because it's something that's more common in your business or something that's more common in your in your community. I am thinking of a 65-year-old grandfather who, I mean, you couldn't make this up. He's walking home from work and his grandchildren live nearby. And he stops to play with them and he's holding his grandchild when he hears a voice behind him put the put the child down and 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 the feds the feds had come to arrest him oh my god and um he he did not fully realize the risks of of dealing in cash and you know it's a whole it's a whole fascinating story i don't want to be it's really important to kind of maintain the confidentiality of um the people that were fortunate to to work with. But the long, the long short of it is that, you know, if he had been more aware of the obligations that you have when dealing with large amounts of cash, he never, ever would have gone anywhere near. And it was, you know, he was set up and targeted in a certain way, but he was vulnerable to that because of what, because of what he, he didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a tremendous amount that, you know, or someone's not aware of the due diligence that is needed before they engage in some type of a business um, arrangement, or they Mm -hmm. think, you know, I'm not doing that actual work. I'm hiring somebody else to do it. The responsibilities of seeing whether it's done ethically are not, are not mine, whether it's, you know, marketing a product where, um, or a service where there's nothing really proprietary about what you're selling. Mm-hmm. Your product is just like everybody else's and you're competing purely on advertising and marketing. Maybe you're hiring a, you know, a marketing company to do that, to do that for you. And it's a business where there's a lot of aggressive marketing. That you might be, you know, contracting somebody else ultimately the responsibility of whether they are doing that legally is with you. Mm-hmm. And if they are not, it's not just an issue of people, dissatisfied customers. 
and it's okay because you return the product to them, there are legal implications. So these are the these are the types of stories where, and I'm thinking of two or three stories like this, you know, that are just coming, you know, top of mind where the person was unaware of the, and and sometimes, you know, it gets a little bit murky where there's what's called, you know, in legal terms, willful ignorance. It's mm-hmm. I'd rather not, no, I'm not worrying about it. And that's where, you know, we kind of get into the second category, which is someone's aware on a certain level that what they're doing might be in a gray area. It's questionable, but they're, they're rationalizing it, you know, in some, Mm -hmm. in some way, either it's, you know, everybody else is doing it. Right. This is a really, really hard one, or it seems like everyone else is doing it. Um, You know, and to be really frank, there are a lot more people engaging in behavior than there are people who, God forbid, end up getting caught. Mm-hmm. But I think we kind of owe it to ourselves as a community to say, first of all, the fact, you know, that's no consolation for somebody who does get caught. Right. And, you know, and that's why it's really important. And we're up against this. We cannot look at this as a fringe issue. Right. Um, the person who, God forbid, it does catch up with them. They're not facing, you know, the 0.03% chance that they had of, of getting caught. They're facing 100% of those consequences. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, and it's indescribable. But the behavior itself is, it's not who we are. Right. Um, and it's, it's taking something that's not ours and is not, is not meant for us. And that's, you know, an important part of the conversation is, is to recognize, you know, and this is a really, really deep piece, but that which is destined for us is destined for us. Nobody can touch it. It's, this is baked in and um, I'm not being cavalier. I think to really live the Torah's teachings in this area is, is a life's work. Yeah. We're all trying to do a little bit better, but if we really did have a perspective that Hashem is the one who's providing everything for us. And the decision that I have is, can I make the right vessel to receive that blessing that was destined for me and my, my family? That's actually the agency that I've been given. Right. Am I going to attempt it through some type of questionable gray area, Mm -hmm. illegal means? No, it's, it clearly has to be through something that, you know, would be in keeping with the Torah's values and instructions and expectations of us. So that's where I think we really have to speak to this tension that could be there where I know Rabbi Lister spoke about instant gratification. Yes. So the benefits of doing something questionable are there immediately. They're, they're present. The, it's the expedient thing. It's Mm -hmm. the thing that perhaps it calms everything down for the time being. The potential risks just, they just don't, they don't factor in because Mm -hmm. they're so distant and they seem, and they seem so small. And that's why I think. We have the conversation really of, okay, what, but what do those risks really look like? Right. Because if somebody was really looking at this through some type of cost benefit analysis, there's no way they would get anywhere near. Mm-hmm. You don't want the minutest potential of something like that blowing up the family that you've built and the way that you want to take care of your loved ones and, you know, everything that's near and dear and precious to us that we've devoted our whole lives to. Why would I even allow the smallest potential? For all of that to erupt Mm -hmm. in my face, God forbid. 
Hey, do you know what's my favorite email of the day? The one I receive from Daily Giving every morning. I get to see a new updated donation amount and the organization receiving the donation that day. True, I may have only contributed $1, but the impact of my dollar when pooled with that of thousands of daily givers is massive. I love knowing that every single day I'm giving, no matter how busy my life gets, I know every day I'm fulfilling the mitzvah of tzedakah because I signed up to daily giving, and so should you. Don't wait. Head over to dailygiving.org and become a daily giver today. And then we need to talk about, hey, this behavior itself, forget about the benefits, forget about maybe it seems that it's unlikely and the government has bigger fish and we've heard it all. It's just, this is not, this is not the right thing. Right. And and we have and we have to have the strength to say everybody else might be doing something or it seems that way, but we're going to find a pure, wholesome mechanism for receiving Hashem's bracha. So I think that's, you know, some of the conversation that has to happen on the level where they're, it's rationalized in some way. It's almost like, and a part of me wishes that we could live with that consciousness all the time of who do I represent here? Like I'm here to serve Hashem and my creator and anything that I do for my creator is always going to be result in good for me, whether I understand it, see it, can calculate it or not, Right. And we almost want to be there all the time and not have to go to that cost benefit analysis. But unfortunately, we do like, like we started off this conversation. We do have to have the conversation. We have to become aware that there are real risks here. Um, it's almost like we didn't, we wish we didn't have to say it. And we wish we all understood that if you're representing Hashem and you're doing Hashem's will, like that's all that matters. Um, but sometimes we need to kind of like get a little shaken up and hear the negative, you know, the consequences here in the physical world. <laughs> exactly. You said it, you said it really well, you know, in Hasidic terms, where every human being is a hybrid, mm-hmm. um, we have a godly soul, we have our altruistic, that kernel of goodness within us, the spark of Hashem that resides within each individual. We also have our animal soul right. that sometimes makes it a challenge. I think we're trying to make an argument for both. Right. Um, and we need to speak equally to both. I think exactly. we can't be naive about the challenges and the temptations. They're real. It's difficult. Um, and I think we need to address those in a in a practical way and be with people kind of down here. I We need to sit with people at their kitchen table who are, you know, trying to pay the credit card bill right. and the tuition and the tuition bill. Um, and at the same time, we could focus on that aspirational piece of um, how is this part of serving God? And, you know, I think there sometimes could be an approach to it that we serve God by observing Shabbos <laughs> and Yantif and kosher and giving our children a Jewish education. And then, you know, business, business is business. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, certainly Hasidic philosophy, but I think if we look if we, you know, emphasizes this a lot, but if we just look at Torah, there isn't some dichotomy over here. These are not two, you know, in all your ways, you shall know him. We are meant to be kind of complete holistic beings in our, in our relationship with Hashem. And the money piece is not just kind of extra, but I think because of the challenges of it, because of how difficult it is, in a way, it's kind of almost the acid test. Right. It's 
this is where the rubber meets the road. Right. You know, it's almost easier to serve Hashem in all of those holier things. Can I allow my relationship with Hashem to permeate every part of me to the extent that I'm serving him by filling out my tax return, that Mm -hmm. I'm serving him by how I do business, that I'm serving him by how I conduct myself financially when it's difficult, when it's painful, when it hurts. You know, we're talking about things we're doing the right thing is going to have some sacrifice. Exactly. Involved. If there wasn't any sacrifice, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be an issue. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, we're trying to flag for people. Let's talk about the internal debate that goes on and the ways that we sometimes rationalize things that we know on some level is not the right thing to do, but we found a way to live with it. We need to really think about that long before we're facing the temptation. Right, right. Um, I remember speaking with a well-known psychologist who is highly regarded, and he was saying when someone is kind of in the throes of um, the pressure, it's really, really difficult to resist and make the right decision. But if this is something that they have thought about, if this is something that they have defined and come to the decision, I'm going to do this, but I will not do that. Mm-hmm. What are my ethical lines? What are, you know, and what line won't I cross? And especially if this is something that is talked about as a family. Yeah. About it with children. I would imagine from, you know, what I've seen of your content that you would encourage that we talk with our children about, um, you know, finances, that kind of old fashioned idea that existed where, you know, children should be seen and not heard. And this was the realm of adults. I think we know, well, then eventually that child is an adult who's not equipped to navigate the world when it comes to these decisions. One of the early books that I read was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah. Um, You know, but it makes a very good general point that, you know, you're going to behave much, much different later in life based on kind of the financial education and discussion that you received from your parents. And I think parents need to communicate the challenge also. Yep. Not, not just a picture of perfection because children are going to, they're going to grapple with this. This is something, you know, we're dealing with it in our family. My daughter is going to be, you know, working for the first time in the coming year, extremely, extremely proud of her, but it's also the opportunity to, you know, set things up in a way, whether it's automatically taking off 10%. Yep. But, you know, how you're set up in terms of we're not cutting, we're not cutting corners. Yes. And, um, and you'd, you'd be surprised how I just had a conversation with a group of um, high school girls, counselors, all about this. They're so thirsty. They're so enthusiastic about getting this knowledge. Like they, because they realize, oh, these are the practicalities of life. They want to get it right. You know what I mean? They want to hear that, oh, so I will take 10%. And then there's a notion of saving and there's a notion of investing and there's a notion of paying taxes. And right, they they want to have this understanding. So I think we need to give our kids a little, a lot more credit. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I, yeah. And, and it's not just what we tell them, but it's what we model. It's what we 100%. model for them. A hundred percent. Who was it that said that like, you know, having children is like having a mirror shown up against the difference between what you practice and what you preach. Right. Um, there's no way, there's no way to fudge it. And I think it really shows up in this issue. Um, somebody, somebody shared with me how, when they were younger, this was like, they're maybe 14, 15. Um, they were in yeshiva away from home. Mm-hmm. 
And it was common that when, you know, there would be a trip or whatever, and, and the boys were going on the Metro that the young, the ones who kind of looked younger would get a, a, you know, a half price, a child's ticket and kind of pass as being under the age of, under the age of 12. Mm -hmm. Um, And he happened to mention this to his mother on, you know, when he was calling home. Um, This is a guy who's now probably in his mid late thirties. So this happened, this happened quite a while ago, but his mother was so upset with that. And, you know, she said, but it's not true. You cannot, you know, take something, the benefit. um, It's just, it's not MS what mm-hmm. you're um and she said tell me the difference what is the what is the dollar amount the difference between the regular fare and you know a child's fare i'm going to send you above the regular spending money to make right. sure that you have and you will always go um in a way that's honest and in yeah. a way that you know with integrity that you could feel comfortable about and he later you know ended up as a newly, newly married couple in situations where, and he was really kind of struggling to get afloat and all types of business propositions. And this line saved him. Wow. And he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to wonder about it. I mean, there are plenty of instances where someone does the right thing and they're never able to see how it pays off. But he's like, I can trace, he, he saw the people in the newspaper who had come to him with questionable things, he, he saw the consequences that they felt. Um, and, and he just, he thanked God that he had the benefit of that, of that perspective to just make it very clear. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that's an important thing that I would. Yeah. I, I think it's very important that you touch on this because as parents, I, I think we need to understand that the responsibility and it's in, in, you know, it's those small things like that small conversation that mother had with that yeshiva buffer is so, so impactful. And so is when you go to the amusement park on Holomoid or whatever it is or the zoo and you tell your kid, Shh, you're 11, you're not 12, right? Like, no, don't do that. You just taught them the worst lesson of his life, you know? Because you want to yeah, save twenty dollars. You reminded me of a funny story, but um, you know, I live in Toronto um, now. But at one point, we lived in we lived in the states. Mm-hmm. But we were vis- we were visiting Toronto over over Pesach, and um, you know, there's there's a pretty intense process as you as you cross the border. And one of the things that we were asked was if we had any dairy products, or um, and we said no. And my four-year-old daughter, but this is the same four-year-old who now is 18 and is um, kind of launching into an adult, you know, the, the adult arena. She was like, yeah, yeah, you have, we have, we have yogurt. Mm-hmm. And I think it was really important in that the, the what I wanted to do was, Shh, right. you know, don't get us into trouble over here. And the, right. the we need all this call of Israel dairy. <laughs> The border agent thankfully had a sense of humor and he was like, aha. Uh-huh. Um, but he, he realized that we weren't pulling anything over him. But to train our children to have instincts that it's okay yeah. to say that, say the truth, the more harmful thing, much more harmful than us getting in trouble for having, you know, yogurt said, by the way, we absolutely needed traveling on Pesach. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, 
much worse than that would be if a four-year-old learns, you know, oh, there are times that I need to. Right. There are times when it's okay to lie. Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. and I need it's justifiable. To learn. It's justifiable. It's justifiable. And I need to learn when those times are. When, 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 when is it expedient to do that? When is it advantageous? Mm-hmm. That's what it is to be an adult. The adult knows when to lie. And I'm the innocent, pure, right. you know, one telling the truth. No, there really shouldn't be um, daylight there. And, and I think in a lot of ways, this is just an example, but there are so many opportunities that we could, we're not remaining neutral on the topic. Yeah. Either solidifying their honesty and integrity or we're, or we're compromising. And it sounds, it sounds harsh, but they are watching what we're doing one way or another. And if we're not having these conversations and modeling that, then they're, they're probably learning something else. So I I agree so much with what you said in terms of the role that parents have to play. Um, I think there is a role for for schools, but we are our children's first teacher. And, and we need to, we don't abdicate that role, even when they're in school full time. In a lot of ways, what we're trying to do through schools is a way of beginning conversations at home. Right. Um, there's parental education that comes um, that comes together with it. So that's a that's a really important piece. So I want to ask about this. So we talked about ignorance. We talk about rationalization. What is the third bucket that you that you would uh, name? So this is where there really is um, an intent to circumvent the system. This is someone who is mm. smarter than everyone else, has found a way around the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily because they need to. They may feel, by the way, that that they need to because they need to provide at an extremely high high level it feels like a it feels like a need to them but um and there is some real pressure that they're experiencing but this is i'm i'm smarter than everyone else right i have a yiddish cup here (laughs) exactly exactly and you're it's it's only stupid people that get caught um you're a loser just because you haven't figured out the right way of of doing it um yeah this this is a little bit harsh but it does it, it it does exist um, and we were really cautioned in the beginning, what are you going to say to the person who came up with the scheme? You know, actually, somebody that um, became an Olive client, mm-hmm. he, put it, he put it to us this way. He said, I felt like I had Teflonism. I was Teflon. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing was ever going to s- stick. I, yeah. I could go from one, you know, one thing to another. I would have a way out of this and deal with that while that comes. And I just think, you know, someone else, someone else also said something. This was someone who has spoken very publicly. So I can, I can share at one point um, was managing, was personally managing a hedge fund with many, many hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And he was spending his time, you know, whining and dining clients. He was spending his time on the golf course and he really, you know, he saw what he was doing in the beginning. He saw it as trying to get, you know, a little bit better of an investment for his clients. He wasn't taking from clients. He was borrowing. He was always going to return it. He always kind of thought, I'm going to cross right back over the the ethical line. And it spiraled and it grew. And the way that he, at, at a certain point, there was no putting the toothpaste back in the tube. Right. And the way that he's, 
put it to us. He's like, I realized I had dug a 10 foot hole and I only had a two foot ladder. And um, he was actually, he was arrested on Yom Kippur. If you could, if you could believe, if you could believe that, you know, fast forward, maybe four years later or thereabouts, he spent over two years behind bars and he gets out and he's trying to um, just survive financially. And he applies to Amazon for $15 an hour to schlep boxes and they refuse him. Oh my gosh. And this is, this is when he's out and, and I can't even describe the impact, the impact on his family. So there's an, it, it sometimes very often begins with something much smaller that then, you know, grows and there's risk creep and incrementally becomes something where there's, there's no return. Mm-hmm. What we have learned from people who found themselves in a situation where they were orchestrating a scheme is that they were not born that way. Right. And if there had been some type of an intervention early, if there was a healthier perspective to begin with, or earlier in- intervention, these things are not inevitable. And um, they really, they do often say to us, I really wish I had the benefit of this perspective at an earlier time, because I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have gotten caught up in, in all that, even though it was, it was very deliberate and intentional mm-hmm. in where, um, in where they, in where they led things. So all of this, I think, reinforces that there is a role to play preventively in terms of education and awareness. Um, and that we don't have to give up, we don't have to give up on, on anyone. And it's not to be naive right. that there are people who are going to take advantage of the system and there are things that are going to happen and we're not going to have a perfect world um, until Mashiach comes. And that should be really, now. <laughs> really, really soon. We're at that time of year where I think we're all feeling that perhaps even more than more than usual, having come from Tisha B'Av. But there are things now that we can each do as a family within our circles of influence. I want everybody who's listening to feel like an ambassador. If there's something that touched you about the conversation today, speak about it with right. other people. Take take that kernel and um, spread that light further because it does make a difference. We're, we're hearing, we're getting you know voice notes and messages from people telling telling us, you know, I listened to you on that podcast and um, I was in a line of work that was a gray area. This forced mm-hmm. me to have a conversation with my rabbi and it was a good, it was a good job, but he told me this is not for you. Amazing. Um, you know, so- someone else was concerned that they were violating, you know, certain anti-kickback laws in their, in their state. And we were able to connect them with an attorney who was able to give them guidance and the guidance was despite everything you're being told run don't walk wow um, and that's you know that that's key also another you know really important nugget that i would want to give people who are listening is that it's really important to ask mm-hmm. and to ask somebody who's really qualified to answer your particular question and has no skin in the game is not going to benefit one way or another does not have a reason to tell you what you want to hear, but is totally neutral and will weigh in on the particular 
legal question. There's a tendency to think that if I don't know definitively that it's wrong, it can't really be something that lands me up. Right. In prison. If I, you know, there's no, you know, there's no intent and I wasn't looking and that's good. And perhaps in other areas of life, but over here, what you really don't know could, could really harm you. Right. Right. And, and you have kind of that obligation to know definitively that it is no affirmatively mm-hmm. that you are doing it. Okay. Not that there's some way to explain it or it's not as bad as what a neighbor is doing, but that the actual behavior in your circumstances that it's okay. And that's, that's the barometer. That's the threshold that, um, that you need to, you need to meet. So it's really, it's really important for people to, um, just like you would in other areas of life, ask somebody who, who knows, don't, don't get legal advice, you know, at, at the kiddish. Right. Or, you know, what so-and-so heard from so-and-so, or this person seems to be really well off and that's what they do your family is too, is too precious. And, um, you know, this is also an area where tight knit communities are at greater risk. And it's yeah, I was going to ask about that. Are we, because we, we, we trust each other. Right. In inherently we're close, which is a positive, but it could, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. And it should, it should be there. And we see that play out and you know call Yisrael Ravens this is this is wonderful but you know the first victims of a Ponzi scheme are friends and family yep and we're all we're all family right. that's how that's how we feel and so there's sometimes a trust where if somebody that I didn't know was coming to me with the same proposition I would put it through the ringer right. and the filter you know, but because it's somebody, everybody knows yeah. and, and he's the most trustworthy. Yeah. And I trustworthy know his parents person. and, you know, his, my sister-in-law is their cousin or whatever. And we've seen this, you know, we've seen this, I think in particular lately where that could create a blind, that could create a blind spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to put everything through, you know, if you're investing money with someone make sure that it's fully transparent. Right. Not just that a person's telling you, oh, I'm doing X, Y, and Z. Right. But do you have a mechanism to really check all of that and see how things are, how things are being done? Because it's your, it's your money, mm-hmm. you know, on, on the line. And we're not immune from those types of, from those types of schemes when they do happen. Yeah. Now, and having said that, though, I think we had a conversation prior, you and I, where we did recognize that some people might think, and maybe the media kind of feeds into that, that we as Orthodox Jews are more prone to these things. But I think what you found is that that is not the case. So this is not for anybody to kind of get that impression. No, this is not something that is unique to the Jewish community. Really, Mm -hmm. really important. And I think that sometimes contributes to the discomfort about speaking about it. And so, yeah, thanks for that, uh, that disclaimer, it's a really, it's a really important one. Um, it is not unique to the Jewish community, but hopefully what's unique is the way that we're stepping yeah. up and trying and trying to do better. I think the ways of addressing this might need to be unique to our community. Right. Um, and certainly there are risk factors 
that may be, and, and what they call affinity crimes, which is what we were just talking about, because right. it targets the people that are closest to someone, um, that is something that might be a particular risk. And we've seen how, how that trust that could be there is sometimes could be taken taken advantage of. And it's, mm-hmm. it's important to, to kind of flag that for people. So but I like that. Yeah, it's sorry. Not, it's not something, it's, it's really important that it's not something that's particular to our community, but it does happen. And even one is one too many. Exactly. Exactly. That's the point. That's exactly the point. And we, we all have to step up and do better, um, for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, for our businesses, all of that. I like that you mentioned asking because sometimes the ego really gets in the way. And this goes back to again, what we mentioned about living a life that is God centered, right? And if it's God centered, then I put my ego aside and I go and find the answers and I go ask the questions. And if I have to pay the lawyer, I pay the lawyer, but I, I get definitive answers. Um, and we've gotten really, really practical tips in, in sort of enclosing any other, any other ideas in terms of practical measures, short of listening to this conversation, short of trying to get project 432 into our community schools or systems or whatever, you know, wherever listeners are. Um, what are other practical ideas that you think could really complement the work you're doing could really help people um, kind of shift their mindset, make perhaps better decisions when it comes to their money and their businesses? The last thing that I would kind of, we touched on it briefly, but is make a decision. Ah, Because a non-decision is a decision. And that, you know, we, we've seen... I'm thinking again of so many cases where, oh, this is something that I'm going to deal with later. Mm-hmm. It's, civil, it's a civil matter. I'm going to, yes, I know I have to straighten out how we operate as a business, but like I'm just dealing with clients. I'm in the hub of, you know, everything 24 seven. It's something that we're going to deal with later. Wow. Oh, it's a, it's a paperwork. It's a paperwork issue. Um, and I think it's important to really, be aware that that not be a way of just kind of skating by on something that could God forbid be, you know, a real, a real risk factor. Yeah. Um, so address, tackle things in real time in a, in a way the barometer needs to be, am I able to be fully transparent about it? So people often ask, you know, the U.S. legal code has the most complicated, you know, set of laws probably of any country in modern mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. And um, legal scholars and attorneys who spent years studying this and practicing this sometimes aren't aware of laws that are on the books. How am I, a layperson, meant to navigate these decisions? And a really good rule of thumb is is what's being proposed asking of me not to be transparent with some entity that or some person who's involved here. Amazing. If that, if that is the case, that needs to put up a red flag. Red then you flag. Need to address that. Right. And ask, if the customer was aware of X, Y, and Z, would they be upset? This needs to be looked into. Is it okay? Is it 
Right. Is it it, the customer or the supplier or the government, right? If somebody, no, he, yes. every, there has to be transparency across the board. If there, if there, if you, if you have an inkling that you can't be transparent with any, with someone, that should be a red flag. That's it. I actually heard this from a business, from a business person. If you want to, he said, if you want to bottom line it, is this arrangement forcing me to not, and it doesn't have to be that it's forcing me to say something untruthful, right. but is it asking of me to withhold information from somebody where if they knew that they likely would be upset. Mm-hmm. That needs to trigger, you know, something where we, we go out and do our due diligence and make sure that we're not blinded. Right. Um, and we're getting the perspective from somebody who really purely has our interests to guide us on and, and tell us, no, this is, it could be, it's hundred percent legal, but I did my family and myself the favor of, you know, wrapping up that package with a bow and putting it totally set, totally settling that issue. Right. Um, so that's a, that's a good, that's a good rule of thumb. You know, when it comes to financial transaction, there's what, from the investigating perspective, they call an SAR, mm-hmm. the suspicious activity report, which is what triggers the government to perhaps look into something. You know, there's something about these transactions that, and there's a whole algorithm, and that's a whole interesting, fascinating thing. But we need to have our own internal SAR and yes. say, this triggers something for me, and not to overlook it or just go with the flow, but you know, Hakobi de Shamayim puts Miyira Shamayim. So many other aspects of life are in the hands of heavens, but these ethical moral choices, this is where God gave us free will. Mm-hmm. And to grab the, the steering wheel of these decisions and say, I'm not just going to float with the stream, but going to do the work to make sure that it's the right thing, it's the safe thing, because ultimately, you know, as we spoke about, that's, that's the vehicle for all the blessings that we're, that we're striving for. And, and just in closing with that, you know, somebody might listen and still say, well, but that area is not Yerushalayim. Like that's not, you know what I mean? Like that's the U.S. government or that's right. And here we're trying to remind listeners, no, that is, that is because the Torah itself has told us you have to live by the law of the land, period. It is Torah. Yes, and I will tell you that very rarely do we even need to arrive at um, what you're referring to in terms of dina de mochus adina, that the law of the land is the land, because is, is the law, because Torah itself told us that this activity, you'd be very, very, is, is not kosher. Mm-hmm. You'd be very, very hard-pressed to find laws, and we could, you know, there's there are, I'm sure, some exceptions, but laws that are on the U.S. legal code that are not in some way about not hurting somebody. Mm-hmm. Not, not taking something right. in, taking something improperly. Um, so yes, the the legal is a religious obligation. It's what, um, not to say that that makes it easier, but it's all the more reason why we should lean into the lean into the challenge. Amazing, Rolanda. Thank you so much. Please tell us a little bit of where we can find you, where we can connect with Project Four Thirty Two. If somebody wants to bring one of your programs to their community, where can we do that? So you can always email us at let's talk 
at p432.org. Um, p432.org is our website. Engage with us there. You can see some of the programs that are going on. Um, follow us on social media. Um, we're on Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn at PROJ432. That's our handle across all of those. Amazing. Um, yes, we will get back to you, by the way. Amazing. Um, we're, we're an organization. We will, we will follow up. We'd welcome any input, feedback, guidance, insight. Let us know, you know, what you think about these ideas, how we could be more effective. We're looking to partner. And I just want to thank you because you've been so generous with the opportunity to shine a spotlight on this on this issue and use your platform for good. It's a natural place because you're doing such wonderful holy work, but we really, really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. This is this is really, really important work. And we're not going to need it very soon. But thanks to you, we're all going to be doing a little bit better. We're going to bring Mashiach and bring this world finally to the ultimate perfection. Thank you so much for everything that you guys are doing. Really, Kola Kabul. Thanks to Rabbi Landa for stopping by. You can find Project 432 at p432.org. Please head over there to engage with them, to ask questions, and to bring their educational programs to your community. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and rating on the Apple Podcast app. That really is one of the best ways that you can help this show as the Apple algorithm relies on reviews like yours to recommend the show to listeners looking for valuable content. In addition, every Friday, I like to pick a reviewer of the week who wins a 20-minute session with me. So if you've ever wanted to sit and get some personalized advice or just have me be your sounding board, I'm here for you. All you have to do is leave a review and I will be announcing one reviewer every Friday. Chances are pretty high that that could be you. Also, keep sending in those questions for our Friday Ask Yael episode. I will tackle them here on Friday. You can send those in via email, yael at yaeltrush.com or DM me on Instagram or LinkedIn at yaeltrush. Have a great week.